Hello and welcome to the Demystifying Media Podcast. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon, and today we're going to be talking about audience engagement, digital media, and social media. To help us discuss this, I'm joined in the studio today by Adriana Lacey, an award-winning journalist and consultant based in Boston, Massachusetts. She's the founder and president of Adriana Lacey Consulting, a full-service digital consulting firm helping publishers and businesses to grow their digital audiences. She's also an adjunct lecturer in the journalism department at Brandeis University and the 2023 Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree in recognition of her work as the founder of Journalism Mentors, a website dedicated to advancing early career journalists through mentoring and paid media opportunities. Prior to this, she worked in audience and engagement roles at Axios, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times and the Neiman Foundation. Adriana has joined us on campus throughout this week as a journalist in residence, meetings with students, faculty and student groups to talk about her work and career path. Adriana, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So uh, I want to start right at the beginning, something actually I've never asked you, which is journalism. Why journalism? How did you get into it? Was it something you knew or you always wanted to do or did you fall into it by accident? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think for me, I definitely fell into it. It was definitely not something that I wanted to do growing up. I didn't really know any journalists. I definitely grew up around, you know, the news and the media. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, so my parents would have a subscription to the Philadelphia Inquirer. So I would, uh, you know, take a read of it every morning, um, mostly the comic section. But I would definitely look at it. But being a journalist is not something that I really thought about until I actually got to campus. Um, I went to Penn State and was majoring in education. So that was my goal to teach elementary education. But as I got more and more involved in campus, I really saw just how powerful media was. And it wasn't until my senior year that I actually switched my major to becoming a journalism major. Um, So that was really exciting. And I think once I switched and started doing internships and just learning more about the industry, I think I just fell in love instantly. Fantastic. And was there a particular tipping point for you where you kind of realized this was what you wanted to do or was it more of an incremental discovery? Yeah, I think it was incremental. Um, I think there was kind of one event that definitely, I think, started that. Um, I remember my freshman year when I was on campus, Soledad O'Brien actually came to campus and she talked a lot about her journey and just the power of diverse voices and storytelling. And I thought it was just really inspiring and interesting to hear her story because she's someone who came up in legacy media and then ended up, you know, doing her own thing and starting her own company. And I just thought the work that she has done in media was really admirable. So having made that switch in your final year, um, was there a lot of catching up to do? Because you, in terms of your career, as we've we've talked about, you hit the ground running. So uh, how did you kind of make up some of that that time in your final year? Yeah, so I think a lot of it was definitely student media. Um, even though I wasn't a journalism major at the time, I'd started my own news outlet on campus. Um, so I wasn't a edu- I was an education major, but I was still doing journalism. So I was still kind of in the media space, but not officially. So I think that gave me a lot of experience. Um, and then the summer um, after my junior year, I ended up interning at Axios in DC. So that's where I got a lot of news experience. So I think those two things kind of really helped me really jumpstart my career. And we often talk about the importance of and the value of student media for people in terms of giving them a training ground and a sandbox to kind of learn and, and practice their their craft. Is that something that kind of resonates both with you in terms of your experience, but also the students that you've worked with at Brandeis and also at the uh, University of Southern California? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think classes are so great because you learn the fundamentals and you learn the basics. But I think when you're in, you know, student media and you have to make editorial decisions and you have to manage, you know, 
work-life balance and dealing with students, I think that's when you really start to understand what it's like to be a journalist. And I think it's such a powerful place because you can make mistakes, um, learn things and kind of do it in a place that is um, pretty low stakes, I think, compared to the real world. And I think that's really where you can um, grow and really learn in media. And I think, you know, even the students that I teach and I work with, a lot of them have the same experience where they're working in student media and they're really taking what they learned in the classroom and really applying it. And the publication you created, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what was the driver for for doing it? Yeah, so the name of it was um, Penn State Underground, or we called it The Underground, and pretty much we tried to tell kind of the untold stories of Penn State. So we were really kind of interested in looking at, you know, why um, isn't the student media landscape as diverse at Penn State as it could have been? Um, Why weren't there many international students represented? Penn State has a really large international student base, and we felt like there were just lots of stories there that could be told. So our goal was really kind of centralizing and really just focusing on kind of the stories on campus and making sure we could tell those. And within that, did you also feel that you didn't see yourself represented in student media on campus? Was that a factor as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't know anyone who was even in, um, you know, the newspaper or any other outlet. So for me, it really was kind of a representation thing as well. And then you talked about, so having graduated from that, you went to work at, at Axios. And the focus of your work has been predominantly on audience development and digital and social engagement. How did you fall into that field or decide that that field was for you? Yeah, so I had done a lot of work in sports before I was even interested in journalism. I was always a big uh, soccer fan and that was really where I got a lot of experience. And when I was on campus, I'd interned with the athletic department and a bunch of different areas, the football team, um, soccer team, the basketball team, and I did a lot of social media. So I knew that kind of digital creation, content creation was something that was really interesting to me but I didn't really know that that could be applied in a journalistic sense. Didn't really realize that until I actually had interned at Axios and was the social media intern. And I realized like, wow, there's this whole part of news that's not just being a reporter or being an editor. And that's kind of really what got me kind of interested in that um, genre. Now, my take on that is that I don't think enough students think of that as a potential career path. And yet they've grown up as digital natives. They're very immersed in this space. They have strong opinions about what they like on social and digital and a lot of skills and experience, both in terms of content they're creating for themselves or, as you demonstrated, in in terms of other work that they might be doing um, on campus. Is that a fair kind of summary? I mean, do you think most journalists in your experience still look at quite traditional career paths rather than perhaps looking more widely at some of these other possibilities and ones that might actually be a better cultural and skill fit for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times when we hear the word journalist, we just think of a writer. You know, we don't even think of an editor sometimes. We just think of someone who's writing stories. And I think because of that, we have such a limited view on what actually happens in media. And there's not really room for copy editors, designers, product. And I think more and more that we can start to kind of integrate these things in our curriculums and undergrad and start exposing students to these kind of different paths, we can have people kind of do that. Because most of the people I know who work in, you know, audience engagement or social media, they kind of pivoted from being a reporter first and fell into it because they kind of found it later on in life. And I think hopefully more and more, I think it's getting better where students are starting to realize these are kind of very viable career paths early on. Well, and they're also arguably the areas where we're seeing the most growth, the most opportunities, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as much as, you know, reporting and editing will always have its place, I think, you know, really disseminating that writing is so, so important. Um, it's one thing to write an article, but it's really now about distribution. You know, where does that article go? Um, what does it look like on social media? What does it sound like audio wise? There's just so many different paths you can take. 
And you mentioned that many of the people you work with started as reporters and then um, migrate over to those kinds of digital and, and social roles. Do you see a, well, let's say a snobbery, for want of a better way of putting it, if, if you come into those kinds of roles without that kind of traditional re- reporting background? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times, even still in journalism, people see these social media roles as kind of like PR or marketing and not real journalism. But everyone I worked with, all the colleagues I've worked with who have had, you know, audience engagement roles have worked in journalism, you know, have journalism degrees, master's degrees in journalism as well, and have the same skills. But I think so much of, you know, what is journalism is focused on writing and reporting that we don't really see kind of these other roles as, you know, actual journalists. Right. And and so we need to broaden that definition of what constitutes journalism um, and also recognize that people in those roles are bringing journalistic and editorial sensibilities to the work that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, on the product side of things, like I've known so many places where if you work in engineering or product, you know, you're on the business side and you don't know anything about journalism, but there's so many journalists who are pivoting kind of to these roles. And it's great because they bring that knowledge and that expertise that those industries really need to really thrive. Can you give us a couple of examples of things that you've worked on that you're particularly proud of, which have kind of shown those those skills in action? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think for me, a lot of the work that I did at the LA Times was things I was really proud of, especially around just Instagram and social media. Um, when I got there, we had had some Instagram accounts, but we really weren't super focused on Instagram, um, not really focused just on social media at all. I think there was still so much of a focus on the print product, which is something that we see so much. Um, I remember going to morning news meetings and every single story was kind of like, you know, someone would ask you, oh, how long is your story? And they say, oh, it's six inches or, you know, six columns wide. And it's kind of like, oh, what does that mean? But it's just all like, you know, newspaper, physical newspaper speak. And there wasn't really that focus on the homepage and the digital experience. So being there was really exciting because we got to test different types of accounts, um, not just kind of an LA Times, you know, Instagram account, but what does an LA Times archives account look like? Um, how can we, you know, really bolster our food offerings or entertainment offerings on Instagram? So I think being able to kind of set up these different verticals and test and really take a lot of the work that the journalists were doing and package it in a way that we could reach younger, more diverse audiences was really exciting. Right. And and that's obviously a strategic goal for pretty much every media organization wants to reach younger audiences. Um, Social is a part of that mix. But what other things should they perhaps be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different types of things. Um, Social media is a big one. Um, I focus a lot on kind of, you know, referral traffic and aggregators. So places like Apple News, places like Smart News, places like Newsbreak. Um, People really love curated things. Um, That's why I think homepages have kind of really come back in style for some places because people are like, you know, there's so much information in the world. Like, tell me what I need to know. Have someone curate it. And that's kind of been a really great way to do that. So Apple News, I see, is a really big thing for publishers. I ask my students um, before every semester kind of what their news habits are or where they read the news. So many of them always say, we love Apple News. We love just seeing, you know, things that I like and they curate it really well. So I see that as a really powerful tool as well as newsletters as well. Um, newsletters are interesting because there's just so many different things you can do with them. And I think just having that direct line to your readers is something that a lot of places really can replicate. And are there, I also am a big fan of newsletters because it just takes all the hard work out for me. Somebody else has done all that sifting and, and curation. And it's a real skill and, and art. Are there particular newsletters that you are a fan of? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I 
love the Neiman Foundation. So I love the Neiman Lab newsletter. Um, not even necessarily because of, you know, the stories that they put in. And I mean, they add, you know, a story or two of their own reporting. But back to the curation point we just talked about, they do a really great job of curating, you know, here are the most, you know, five, six, seven interesting articles of the day. And I just love that because I don't have to scour the internet and see, you know, what's the most important story. So those are things I really love. Um, I also really love local newsletters. Um, I love the Axios Boston newsletter, seeing kind of what's going on and around in town. Um, the Boston Globe also has a very um, interesting newsletter that they're testing out called B-Side, which is kind of a fun kind of things to do around the city newsletter that I think is really fascinating. Um, it's kind of a business product. It's not necessarily something that's from their editorial team, but I think it's such a great concept because it's just entertainment. And then here's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the skim, you know, it feels very, you know, 10 years ago, it would have been really great. And it's kind of cool to see that model come back. It's a great name, too. Which yeah, exactly. These things. <laughs> uh, and then let's talk a bit more about journalism mentors. So uh, this is the project for which you were honoured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list this year. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't grow up around journalists and you didn't necessarily see when you were at college the the local media scene kind of really reflecting you and your life and, and those of many other people on campus. Were those principles part of the drivers behind setting up this mentorship program? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just remember, you know, even interning at the New York Times and meeting so many people and so many fellow interns and so many of them were talking about how they, you know, were cherubs at the Medill journalism camp for high schoolers. And I was like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. And I was like, this is fascinating. Like, so many people have been editors of their high school newspapers and have been around news forever and had so many deep connections because they went to places like Northwestern, places like Columbia, where they got to really be around so many world-class journalists. And I think more and more as I kind of got in the industry, I realized, wow, there's so many people who just don't have these opportunities who just have never had a chance to be around these really big time journalists. And, you know, a lot of times networking and who you know is so, so vital in every industry, but especially journalism. And I just was really hoping we could find, you know, a way to kind of help level that playing field. So for me, journalism mentors was a way that we could connect, you know, first generation college students, um, people who go to schools that don't have a journalism program to really kind of connect with people and really start that networking, even if their schools or kind of their situations can't give them those opportunities. And so having come up with this, the, the uh concept of of this how did you then go about launching it finding a, a suite of mentors and indeed then getting people to realize this was a legit service and something they could really benefit from yeah of course so I was really inspired by um, there's a similar platform called digital woman leaders which is started kind of um, there's these really cool cohorts that exist where women can kind of be part of a leadership academy and one of the things that came out of it was kind of um, you know this advice and mentoring platform for them and basically they could book calls and talk to people and I thought that model was really interesting and I wondered you know what that could look like on a larger scale where we're focusing on you know just early career college students so got some really great advice from them just on how to do it um, but you know being a child of the internet um, kind of just bought a domain name and set it up and did the website myself and just kind of recruited people to do it. Um, I was really lucky. People are really gracious and happy to do that. So um, I just kind of put a call out on Twitter, like, does anyone want to be a mentor? Does anyone want to volunteer their time? And the applications were just rolling in. So it was really exciting to see. And um, 
I'm going to put you on the spot and ask if, if you can share any numbers with us in terms of number of mentors and number of people that you have, have worked with. That, of course, is not a proxy for anything, but I'm yeah. just curious. No, of course. Um, so I think right now we probably have like about 150 mentors on the site. Um, there's so many more that we have of people who want to join. But, you know, this is a passion project. And I think it's one of those things where wanting to get as many people on the site. But I would say there's probably 200 people even more that are kind of doing it. Um, we asked our mentors a few years ago kind of how many people that they've spoke to on average a lot of them kind of said you know we've spoken to 10 to 15 people so kind of just looking at that scale there's so many people that have kind of been impacted by the program um i've just met people you know in various conferences where it's like oh i talked to a mentor or this person got me a job or this person looked at my resume so it's just so gratifying to see that the platform really has been helping people so we'll put links to it in the in the show notes. But for people who want to get involved either as a mentor or a mentee, what would they need to do? Yeah, of course. Um, if you're someone that wants to be a mentor, we have a really quick and easy Google form on our website, journalismmentors.com. You just apply. We pretty much just ask you for your name, a headshot, what you want to talk about, and just some information about you. Um, and then if you're someone who wants to be mentored, all you have to do is just go on the website and um, take a look at the different people that we have and book a call with them. Um, obviously, we're looking at professional journalists who are very busy with very you know intense deadlines and things, but a lot of them really do put a lot of time on their calendars to be accessible to students. Great. Uh, and um, you've been very accessible this week. You're three quarters of the way through your engagement with us here as a journalist in, in residence. Um, I'm curious, what are some of the things that you have learned or taken away from your interactions with, with students? And what do you want them to take away from you? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, I think for me, I've just been so honored to hear from so many students. I mean, it's so interesting kind of seeing the things that students are thinking about in this day and age. So many of them are just so passionate about how they can make news work for them, um, make news interesting that's interesting to their friends and interesting to the world that we live in. So it's just been so fascinating learning from them about what they love and what they're interested in, um, because I think it makes me a better journalist hearing kind of what people want to consume. Um, I think when you're a journalist and you're working in the industry, you're very easy to think that this is what people need to know or this is how people need to consume news but then when you hear from people you kind of realize you know maybe we're not doing it correctly you know maybe we do need to tailor our our content more towards you know gen z audiences and learning more about that so that's been really great and you know i think for me my hope is just to leave them with as much advice and information as i can um, i've been trying to give them all email addresses and i tell them you know feel free to reach out i'm happy to look at resumes and my hope is that they can really use me as a resource as they navigate their careers Great. And, and well, and hopefully many of them will take you up on that. On, yeah. Oh, on so that many offer. already have. Oh, good. Good. Because yeah. sometimes um, I think students he- hear that message and they're slightly, they, they don't know whether it's genuine or, or not, or uh, they still feel nervous about putting themselves out there. But I mean, my advice would be, would always be, and I'm sure you would echo this, like when people say that, do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the worst they can do is not respond, but they probably right. will, you know? Yeah. And then, and then, um, just looking ahead to the to the future, you set up your own consultancy um, during the course of around about the last year, I think. Um, and you've said a few times in, in classes that you've spoken to that the big thing, not surprisingly, that all of your clients want to talk about is AI. So we should talk about about that. So what are the things that are keeping your clients awake at night in this space? Yeah, I think so many of them just want to do something in the space. I think it's kind of one of those things where it feels like a really popular trend and you just need to do something. It feels very reminiscent of, you know, what happened with Facebook and video, you know, a few years ago where people are like, okay, 
video is really popular so we need to do something and I think right now you know it's just I'm not it's not as straightforward as you know oh make some videos and post them on Facebook and see what happens so I think a lot of people are just kind of figuring out like we know these tools exist we know that chat GPT is a thing like what what's next how do we use this how do we leverage it um so I think that's just been a big thing it's just honestly interest from people um but I think there's also just a lot of concern um I actually just did a seminar recently with a bunch of journalists about AI and so many of them were just very hesitant about it they kind of felt like you know you're telling me about tools that will replace me in the next five years and I think there's a lot of insecurity from journalists that really feel like their jobs are in jeopardy and what I've been trying to tell them is you know I think there will be jobs that will be augmented. There will be roles that change. But I also think that there will still be a need for news and information, especially accurate um, information. We're seeing, you know, so much misinformation, so much disinformation in the world, especially on social media. So that kind of pursuit of truth will always be necessary. But I think just the way in which we report and the ways in which we storytell will be just so different. And really being able to know how to leverage these tools, I think, will be really vital. And is, it, is that a similar message that you would want to co- convey to students? Because like, I think the anxiety and the concerns that you have described that you're seeing with your clients are also very prevalent amongst the student population as well. I'm paying all this money to go to college to do a degree in something which is going to be redundant in five years time because a robot will have taken my job. Yeah, no, it, it's tough. I mean, I think a lot of people are just like really worried, like, why am I why am I doing this? But what I've been really trying to encourage students is really figure out, you know, what are the ways that you can leverage it? You know, I think a lot of people just immediately think, oh, like, we're going to just use these tools to write our essays. And I think that's just a very, you know, narrow way to look at it. Um, Sure, it could probably write an essay, but it's pretty obvious um, when it's written, you know, and not very good. Exactly. <laughs> not very good at all. So for me, it's like, you know, explore you know practical ways you could use it it could help you with outlining your paper it could help you with organizing your research it could help you with finding new sources the same way that the internet did I remember someone was telling me um, a few days ago you know when Google came out people were super nervous people were like you know this is so bad for for academia you know no one's going to the library anymore no one's going to read books and now it's like the idea of not having Google seems so silly and the idea of even using it as a not using it as a tool seems absurd and I think we're going to kind of feel that same way with AI really soon. Right. And I guess arguably that has always been the response to any kind of new technology. I mean, when television came along, it was going to kill radio and radio and audio in the form of podcasts is still going strong. Yeah, it's just a different, you know, a different way of doing it. You know, this idea of like telling, you know, stories and talking and things and communicating via audio is still very popular. It's just augmented, which I think is what we'll see with journalism as well. And so it sounds as if one of the things that you would encourage students to do and indeed your clients is to just kind of experiment and play around with this space. I, I certainly get a sense that people feel overwhelmed by the implications of this technology and almost don't know where to start. Is, is that what you're kind of seeing in the conversations that you're having is that you just need to kind of almost take people gently by the hand and walk them through it? Yeah, definitely. Um, a few weeks ago, I actually did a similar thing with my students where I kind of had them um, create prompts to kind of get information from ChatGPT. And a lot of them had never really played with it. Um, they, they knew about it, but I think so many people, especially in academia, are scared to use it because they're like, I'm going to get in trouble for plagiarism I'm going to get expelled for even just playing around with the tool and that's one thing I've been really like encouraging you know professors and educators is like to embrace it you know don't make it seem like it's a dirty thing that students shouldn't use at all um, because they will have to use it when they get into the real world and people in professional jobs are using it all the time so I've been trying to encourage people you know 
play around with asking it prompts and I had them play around and they were like yeah so interesting like when you kind of guide it and ask it very specific questions it gives you better answers and just being able to just have that experience I think is really important. And um, do you think that we are starting to see a shift in, in that space or is it still too early in terms of a willingness for both students and faculty to em- embrace this technology? Yeah, I think it's starting to change slowly. Um, I think it's just becoming so obvious now that you kind of have to do it. Um, yeah. I think in the early days, you know, ChatGPT was just something that was used by like a very small um, bit of the population. But I think more and more people are learning about it and seeing it that it's just starting to grow. So I think now, you know, it's probably the most popular it's been. But I can imagine in the next few months, it'll be something that everyone's using, everyone's adopting, which is why I'm encouraging journalists now to really start thinking about where they want to use it and how before someone else decides for them. Right. No, that's such a good point. And and it's worth remembering this technology in terms of it being public is not even a year old. Exactly. <laughs> as we're talking. And yet it already has... Uh, ChatGPT alone has a user base that's as big as link, LinkedIn on, a, I think, on a monthly basis and Reddit and so forth. So Yeah, and this changed so much even the past few. I mean, like ChatGPT, you know, 3.5 to 4. I mean, radically different. And you're seeing it just like advance so quickly. So it's like imagine where we'll be in a year from now. Yeah. Gosh, that's, that's a big question to kind <laughs> yeah, of explore. It's a little scary too. It is. But, and I think part of that conversation feeds into... A lot of the negativity that we often hear about journalism, there are many negative things. I mean, right now we're, we're in, a, in an incredibly complex geopolitical situation. News avoidance is at all-time highs. Mistrust in media is at all-time lows. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of negativity about the profession and the, and the industry. But there's also lots of really great work and great opportunities taking place too. So I wanted to kind of wrap up by, by asking, like, what's exciting you about journalism and the news media today yeah you know it's so funny you ask me that because I think a lot of people are really so kind of like doomsday about journalism right now but I do think it's a really exciting time I mean I think we're at a place where we have to start really making some radical decisions about how we want to reach our audiences. Um, I think for so long, social media has been a bit of a crutch for journalists where you didn't really have to do that much work to reach your audience. You post a link on Facebook, it goes viral, everyone reads it. But now we know none of the social media sites really want you to leave the platforms. They don't want you to click links and read articles. And we have to be really, really creative in how we reach our audiences. And I think that's really exciting. Um, Newsletters are becoming super popular. People People are using WhatsApp. People are being just a lot more experimental because they have to. And I think being forced to kind of experiment and be put in these places where you really have to think critically and do research and serve your audience is something that I'm really excited to see. And that's going to be the main theme of your talk tomorrow, right? Your public lecture looking at um, the future of engagement and audience development. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really interested in like private messaging right now. I think that's something that's really fascinating. Um, I know um, Neiman Lab just released that piece yesterday on WhatsApp and how more people are using that. So for me, I'm just kind of really interested on like what are these communities that we can create online and how does that work at scale? So can you just quickly give us some examples of, of, of those? Because not everyone listening will necessarily understand what we mean by private messaging. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I think of private messaging, I think of so many different things. You know, I think the kind of at its simplest thing is text messaging, you know, just simply subscribing to a text message line from a newsroom and someone's telling you, you know, 
breaking news, this thing just happened, click here to read the story. I think it's so valuable, not just on a news and information kind of way, but just giving people information as quickly as possible. You know, something happens in your neighborhood, the power's out, there's no electricity. SMS is always really, really reliable in those situations. Um, I think about the Texas Tribune who used it a lot during a lot of the ice storms in Texas, and it really became a really valuable tool. Um, But then there's places like Telegram and WhatsApp, where these are apps that are used a lot around the world, but have never really caught on in the States yet. And I see these as kind of places that can work really well for journalism. Um, Mark Zuckerberg had just said a few days ago that he was really focusing more on WhatsApp as kind of the future of Facebook and Meta. Um, I think WhatsApp's always been part of their arsenal, but it hasn't been something that they've prioritized as a big kind of social media product. It really was just a messaging product, but I think now it's really just becoming a community um, and just being able to talk to people all around the world, you know, without having to, you know, over Wi-Fi is something that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should say that uh, your lecture is going to be recorded and will also be available wherever you found this podcast. So for more examples, uh, be sure to download and listen to Adriana's talk, uh, which she's going to be doing tomorrow. So um, we could continue uh, on on this vein, but uh, I think we probably uh, draw to a a close there. So uh, Adriana, thank you so much for joining us today and for joining us on campus this week. It's been a delight to have you here uh, in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Do keep an eye out on our website, demystifying.uoregon.edu for more details from Adriana's visit um, and for all of the archive talks and lectures that you can find from this series. Just remains for me to thank one more time our guest today, Adriana Lacey. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.